Hello, it is a joy to be with you here today. And because in this setting, we are trying to replicate as much as possible a Christendom lecture, and since Christendom lectures uh, in all departments begin in prayer, I think that might be a good way for me to begin my address. So if you would join me in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. And Holy Roman Martyrs, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, again, it's my joy to be with you today. Uh, we have... 30 short minutes to discuss this fantastic topic uh, about how to be happy according to Aristotle. Now, given the brevity of the time we have together, uh, I'm going to be very concise, uh, and I'm going to clarify for you now my agenda. So I'm dividing my talk into three parts. Uh, the first part of my address uh, will look at Aristotle's novel thesis, that only the virtuous man can be happy. It's only the virtuous man that is the happy man. And we'll also face uh, an apparent contradiction between that assertion and what could ostensibly be called a, a Christian approach to morality uh, and try to resolve as much as we can that, that apparent contradiction. Uh, we'll then move into, after about 10 minutes, the second part of the address. Uh, and this will be the most lengthy part of the address. In this, I'll try to hit the central, uh, uh, essential points, okay, regarding what Aristotle has to say in his Nicomachean Ethics about morality, okay, and, and, and to back up his assertion that only the virtuous can be happy. I'll then finish uh, with a, around a five-minute concluding uh, reflection on how Aristotle's thought can be reconciled with Christian morality, okay? So that's our agenda. We have a lot to do. So let's get started. Okay. Now, the relevance of our topic, which is always good to comment on briefly at the beginning, is really not in need of defense. Uh, I think everyone can admit, okay, Aristotle would, would assert, that man by nature desires to be happy above all things. We'll, we'll talk about this more later. Happiness is something no one can be disinterested about. Uh, and so there's not a lot of work it will take to justify the relevance of discussing uh, the topic of today's lecture, which is how to be happy. Now, what happiness is, uh, is very much a contentious question and something we'll address later. Uh, but for now, to have kind of a working definition of happiness, uh, we can call happiness a sort of state of enduring human flourishing, okay? that would render man satisfied uh, according to the, his deepest desires. Uh, again, uh, uh, for a working definition, we'll call happiness a state of enduring flourishing in which man's deepest desires are fulfilled. Obviously, this is something everybody wants. Okay, So it's a very, very relevant topic for us and for man in any generation. Okay, Now, moving to a kind of problem, uh, or maybe an apparent contradiction between the thesis that only the virtuous man is the happy man, and another mentality which we all might be familiar with. Uh, I'm sure you've maybe embraced, I know I have at times in my life, I know many people that, that I've interacted with have embraced the mentality, 
Uh, and, and yet, and there's much about this mentality I'm going to uh, communicate here that is accurate and justifiable, uh, but some things that need to be revised. Uh, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the perspective of morality that goes as follows. Okay. Life is full of suffering. Life is a valley of tears. And often, most for the virtuous. We get, it doesn't take a lot to look around at society. And what do we see? Uh, we often see the good trampled underfoot by the wicked. And it seems that the wicked are the ones, potentially, who flourish and are happy. So what is the response, okay, with, with, to this apparent reality? Well, it would seem that the Christian response to that would be to recognize that as more or less the state of affairs, but then to admit, okay, that the person who endures till the end will be saved. Uh, the person who endures through this valley of tears and the many sufferings that we are to find in this life, we can do this because we have the good hope that we will be rewarded in the next life for the good man's fidelity to the commandments, fidelity to the moral life. He will be rewarded. It's just it's not reward. It's not here, but it's up there. It's in the heavenly kingdom. Okay. Now, is that the mentality we need to embrace? It's not the mentality of Aristotle. And it's actually not the mentality of what I would argue, an authentic Christian understanding of morality. Let me explain. I, I think that mentality begins to fall apart when we even look at it uh, you know, more circumspectively. For instance, while it's true that the life of good men involves a lot of suffering, okay, and that the fullness of human happiness is not to be found in this life, but in the heavenly Jerusalem. While all that is true, I think we have to admit that the saints okay, are often some of the happiest people. They seem to thrive in ways that other men do not. In fact, they radiate joy. They radiate peace. If you think about the holiest people you have known, what do you think? Are, are they somber? Are they miserable? No, you think of them as thriving individuals who are fulfilling their nature and living a, a kind of exceptional life, but a life that is not bereft of, of joy, is not bereft of peace. Now, how, can, how, how do we explain this? Well, well, maybe you can explain it by way of saying, hey, it's the life of the Spirit in these individuals. You know, as, as a fruit, you know, some of the fruits of the Holy Spirit would be joy and peace. And so maybe it's precisely because of the Holy Spirit that they are able to be, uh, apparently, to thrive and to be contented in this life. And yet, is that the full explanation? I think that is very much the case, that the principal reason for their joy is because of the indwelling of, of the Holy Spirit, uh, and experiencing the fruits of living in that relationship uh, with the triune God? Absolutely. And yet, it's not a complete picture. Why? It's not a complete picture because there is this other reality we have to reconcile. And that is the statement of Aristotle that someone even bereft of revelation can be happy and fulfilled and especially those who live a life of virtue. 
And so how can we make room for that statement? That bereft of revelation, bereft of a life of grace, the virtuous man is the happy man. Let's take a stab at that now. Uh, and I'm going to take a stab at it uh, in an unorthodox sort of way. Uh, by reflecting on a movie, we find a very strange support for the thesis Aristotle is going to advocate. And the movie is Groundhog Day, uh, Harold Remus's Groundhog Day, uh, starring uh, Bill Murray. Maybe some of you have seen it, maybe not. Uh, but, but in this movie, we find Bill Connors, a weatherman, uh, who is arrogant, full of hubris. Uh, he's miserable, he's contentious, very much full of himself. He finds himself uh, covering the Groundhog Day festivities in Puxatoni, Pennsylvania. And uh, much to his chagrin, he finds when he wakes up after a snowstorm prevents him from leaving Puxatoni, he finds himself stuck in a time loop. And Groundhog Day repeats itself over and over. After he overcomes the original shock and kind of horror of that experience, he then decides, well, maybe this isn't such a bad thing. And he uses his time to maximize his experience of sensual goods. He eats whatever he wants. He gets information that he can use in subsequent days to manipulate uh, people to do what he wants. And, and, and yet he still finds himself unfulfilled. As he tries to manipulate someone into loving him, he's unsuccessful because this good woman will not allow herself to be manipulated. And he becomes discouraged, enters into a kind of nihilistic phase of trying to kill himself over and over, but is unsuccessful. Now, what does he do? He decides to try something he's never tried, which is to cultivate his mind, to develop virtue, to be good to others. And he finds, and to love this other woman in a disinterested sort of way. And he finds that this life is the good life. This life is the way to live. Now, the rest of us don't have the benefit of infinite amount of time to discover that the virtuous life is the happy life. The virtuous life is the good life. But Aristotle, okay, without spending an infinite amount of time, came to the same conclusion that the good life is the virtuous life. And I'm here now to unfold how he defends that position. How is it that Aristotle, someone who did not have access okay, uh, to the knowledge of revelation, he did not live a life in the spirit, to say that the good life is the virtuous life, is the happy life? And then how we reconcile that with the Christian vision is something that we'll do in the last segment of our reflection. Okay. So without further ado, we'll move, and I think we're relatively on schedule here, to the next part of our address where we get into the nitty gritty of what Aristotle has to say about the moral life in his Nicomachean Ethics. This book, uh, I just have to say for starters, uh, we we're here in the rare books room, uh, and there is uh, outside the window to my left, um, we find uh, the, the entrance to our library where a depiction of the School of Athens painting of Raphael the original uh, is in the Vatican Museums, is, is uh, painted on the wall. In the School of Athens painting, you find two central figures in the middle of that painting, Plato and Aristotle. Now, Plato is pointing upward, holding his Timaeus. Aristotle is pointing downward, uh, holding his Nicomachean Ethics. Uh, this work has 
from time immortal been considered to be his great work and, and arguably his most influential work. So we're going to struggle in 15 minutes to cover uh, what he is doing. However, I, I have found, I think, a way through, a way of hitting the central lily pads, the fundamental parts of his different arguments as he tries to defend that thesis that I've enunciated. You know, I've, I've done this in 45-minute segments in a three-part series before. My students in the classroom take over a half of a semester to do this, but we can at least get the principles. We can get the basic understanding of his moral theory, uh, and then I'll allow you uh, at your leisure, I would encourage you, uh, to then read more deeply and develop and build upon the foundation we uh, established today. Okay, so Aristotle in his ethics deals with, not surprisingly, the morality of human behavior. Okay, so that's what ethics is all about. Ethics deals with human behavior. And not just human behavior, okay, but trying to assess what is ordered and what is disordered human behavior, the morality of human behavior. But before he looks at the morality of human behavior, Aristotle starts at the beginning of explaining human behavior itself. And so in the first chapter, first book of the ethics, okay, he tries to explain why man why men act at all? Why do we do anything that we do? And he comes to, and this is the first statement of the ethics, every art, every inquiry, and similarly, every action and pursuit is thought to aim at some good. And for this reason, the good has rightly been declared to be that at which all things aim. So, so what is he saying there? He's saying that men would never do anything unless they discerned that there is a good end that is worth acting for. The fact that you are here today, I know there was some good that motivated you to attend this lecture virtually. Everything you do, there has to be something that motivates you to act. Okay, so obviously he's using the word good, not as a moral good, but what is we might call, uh, for convenience sake, a simple good, a good in the sense of that which is desirable. Now, we say mama's pasta is good, and we don't mean it's morally good, you know, that it never stays out after curfew or what have you, but no, we mean that it is delectable. It is capable of eliciting desire in a sentient being, okay? Uh, it's something that is capable of, of arousing our attraction, okay? And whenever man acts, whatever he does, even morally disordered things, he is acting for the sake of some good. Now that doesn't mean that everything he does is morally good, obviously, okay? When we assess the response of man to the call of simple goods, it's then that morality enters the picture and moral goods enter the picture. So the pursuit of mom's you know, pasta with meat sauce on Good Friday is a disordered response to the call of that simple good and morally evil, whereas, certainly for us Catholics, whereas the response to that good on Easter Sunday is a morally good thing to do. Okay, but we get the idea that whenever we act, we always act for an end. Uh, this is why St. Thomas would say, that the end of our action is the first principle of practical reason. A principle is that from which something proceeds. 
And so we're saying that an action, everything we do, comes about because we've identified some good thing to pursue, okay? And that's why, and we call this, Aristotle does, the final cause of man's action. But something interesting about the final cause is that it is the first cause in the order of intention, even though it's the final cause, it's last in the order of execution. That sounds kind of complicated. What do we mean? We just mean this, okay? Uh, that you want to get up and go to the refrigerator, okay, to get some food. It was the desire to get food that motivated you to get off the couch and walk to the fridge. And finally, when you walked to the fridge and attained the good that you sought, uh, that action was completed. But the action wouldn't have started except for some delectable good that caught your attention and motivated you to act. Okay, this is Aristotle's teleological approach to morality and to human behavior. Uh, teleology comes from the word telos, an end. We always act for an end, and these ends are goods that motivate us to act. Now, he goes on, okay, uh, immediately in the same chapter of book one to say, and yet there's other subtleties we can point out. For instance, some goods derive their, good, their goodness and their desirability from other goods to which they are subordinate, okay? So what do we mean about that? Uh, what are these other goods to which they're subordinate? What does that mean? Uh, well, it means that uh, when I decide to make a decision to go to the store, it's because uh, I make that decision and every intermediate decision, uh, the good of getting in my car instead of walking, the good of turning right instead of left on Shenandoah Shores Road is motivated by the good of getting to the store. That is what motivates me to act. And you can explain why it's a good decision to turn right instead of left. That decision to turn right instead of left is only good in relationship to that good to which that decision is subordinate. That is getting to the store. And so he admits that all goods are relative to other goods and, and frequently we choose things because there are means. They're both an end in themselves, but also means to other ends. And he wonders then, okay, uh, in the second chapter and into the fourth chapter, if there is some one end for the sake of which we act, is there some one good that is a chief good that motivates and can explain everything we do? And he affirms in the positive that there is, okay? He says, if then there is some end of the things we do, which we desire for its own sake, everything else being desired for its sake. And if we do not choose everything for the sake of something else, for at this rate, the process would go on infinity so that our desire would be empty and vain. Clearly this must be the good and the chief good. And then he adds, and will this not and knowledge of it then have a great influence on life? Shall we not, like archers who have a mark to aim at, be more likely to hit upon what is right? If so, we must try, in outline at least, to determine what it is and which of the sciences is capable of pursuing and knowing this object. So in other words, whatever is our ultimate end dictates everything we do. And so it really matters what we're aiming at. Now, what does he conclude? And here, you know, I'm going to have to speak of things in a slightly cursory manner, but he concludes that happiness is that good that we desire above all else. We never desire it as a means to anything else, but it itself is exclusively an end and a chief good. And yet he then admits that it's a platitude. 
just to say that it's happiness. And what further is needed is to clarify what is that good in which our happiness consists. Some people think it's pleasure, others think it's wealth, uh, others th think it's fame uh, or, or some other good, like living a completely virtuous life, okay? And so many people have different opinions and we can see that whatever you're aiming at, your life is gonna be very different. Whatever you determine that good to be is going to determine everything you do because you're acting ultimately for the sake of that end. So it's paramount that we discover what man's authentic end is so that we might direct the course of our lives, okay? Now, how do we discern? Well, he says if this is an end, it can never be desired as a means. And yet we discern some things like wealth, okay, are not desired so much for themselves, but as a means to get delectable goods, okay? And so it, it can't be our ultimate end because it's a means. He also says uh, that it, it renders man self-sufficient. In other words, by possessing it, he's happy in and of himself. But honor demands other people. Uh, you, and if it was man's end, he would be dependent for his happiness upon something else. So it's not a good that is self-sufficient and renders man happy simply by its possession. So what could it be? In search of an answer, he says, we're looking for man's end, the end of his action. So let's figure out what man's purpose is. And how do we figure out the purpose of anything? We look at its function, okay? And he elaborates on this in the eighth chapter, a very important chapter of, of this text, uh, both the seventh and the eighth chapter. And he points out, okay, that you know, a good utensil, a good knife, uh, how does a knife's discern? How do you discern what a good knife is? Well, you have to know a knife's function. A knife cuts, uh, you know, forks, stabs, spoons, scoop, but knives cut. But not all knives are good. A good knife is only one that cuts well. And so we have to discern, looking at man and looking at all the material things in the, in the material universe, what is that which sets man apart from all of these other entities? And the conclusion has to be that it's reason. And so we conclude that a good man one who fulfills his function is one that reasons well. And so we're all born men, but only a good man is one that manifests reason in everything he thinks, in everything he wills, and in everything he feels. Now, how do we go about doing that? I'm going to spend another, it looks like I have two and a half minutes here, reflecting on that. How do we go about doing that? Okay. We go about doing that. Okay by looking to, okay, make ourselves virtuous. Now, now, what does that mean? Well, when we pursue truth by way of our intellect, we develop habits, okay, of pursuing truth. When we pursue a rationally determined good or order our passions in a rational way, uh, when we do this, we develop habits. And these habits make doing good easy, more regular, and more pleasurable, okay? And so he argues, by man inculcating different virtuous habits, he can infuse them into his intellect, his will, and his passions, so that he's able to constantly manifest himself as a thriving, rational animal. And in doing this, man achieves his end and is satisfied. And we see this from other perspectives as well. That happiness of man is enduring. Unlike external goods and make himself sufficient that can be taken away, external goods, 
Goods of the body can be compromised. But these are goods that accrue to our soul, our intellect, our will, those spiritual powers are inviolable. And so as hard as anyone tries to persuade you to turn from a good life, to turn from a life of reason, uh, they are ultimately incapable of doing something if you don't consent. And therefore, the virtuous man, the only thing that can make him unhappy is if he, of his own volition, turns from a life of virtue. Now, he admits that this life can be difficult. Uh, this life can be arduous, but it's precisely, okay, in, in, in the 10th chapter of book one, it's precisely the virtuous man that is capable of enduring life's misfortunes in, 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 in a way that they don't overwhelm him. Uh, and when his, his physical goods, his temporal goods are compromised, whereas other men are left disconsolate, he remains consoled because the highest good of his nature is being fulfilled, and he's able to continually manifest himself as a thriving, rational animal. So for these reasons, Aristotle asserts that the good man is the happy man. Uh, now he adds, okay, and I have about four minutes and 45 seconds left here. <laughs> he adds a few things that will take another minute to unpack before getting into the final part of my address. He adds that this life takes time. And it takes time because what is it to hit the rational mean in our actions and in our passions? Uh, that is what it means to manifest reason in our actions and passions. And he uses a natural analogy. Things thrive when they don't go to excess or defect, when something doesn't take in too much sunlight, too much water, or too little sunlight or water. And so too do our actions. By not giving excessively or taking excessively, one can be a liberal man. By someone not giving too much humor, okay, like a buffoon, or too little humor, like a boar, one can become, okay, ready-witted. Uh, someone who doesn't feel anger too much is not irascible, or someone who doesn't feel anger enough, he's not inirascible, but he feels anger as he ought for the sake of what is just. And so Aristotle points out that good actions, good passions involve hitting the mean in those actions. Now, he admits that some actions there's no mean, like adultery and theft and lying. But in all those other actions we perform, the virtuous man's able to hit the mean. And he's able to do so, why? Because he's developed the virtue of prudence or practical wisdom. This allows him to profit from his experience because the virtuous mean changes slightly in different circumstances. You know, the virtuous mean of temperance on Good Friday looks like radical asceticism. The virtuous mean of temperance on Easter Sunday looks like radical festivity and indulgence. And so that mean changes, but the virtuous man who knows experience is able to adjust. He's able to adjust his perspective to the different situations in, in which he finds himself and to hit the mean in his actions. This takes experience, this takes time, and ultimately a lifetime to perfect. And after, and that's why he would assert that it's the older person who is then in a position to truly manifest his thriving. As long as he has good friends, and he reflects on friendship in the eighth book extensively, that help fortify him as virtue help fortifies us to regularly and easily pursue the good. 
because as we all experience, the good life is done so much easier with other people to help us. Okay. Now, with the last two minutes, okay, I have, I'm going to reflect very briefly on reconciling what I've just stated with what St. Thomas says from a Christian vantage point. What does he say? Well, St. Thomas would and did adopt. He, he reflected, he wrote a whole commentary on the Nicomachean ethics of Aristotle. He adopted what Aristotle had to say. Uh, and so he very much builds on that. But he will distinguish by saying the happiness that Aristotle says is the kind of happiness that could be had in this life. And it's only in the next life that perfect happiness is attained. And it's attained by grace, which I have to note, does not have the mark of difficulty. So again, virtue uh, shows that though it's good to do something objectively difficult, to do it with difficulty is not necessarily good because as you perfect anything, the good man does difficult things with ease. And that's a mark of his perfection. And the greatest thing we ever do, seeing God as he is, is done without any difficulty whatsoever. And that vantage point I think is important to adopt. Uh, and so then we see how grace builds on nature. The base of a good natural virtue is fortified by the supernatural virtues and further fortified by the gifts of the Spirit, like the gift of counsel that perfects man's prudence. And God knew that we, we can't take a lifetime to figure out the moral life as Aristotle did, and so he gives us, by way of revelation, his divine law and knowledge of what to do at the beginning of our life, the gift of counsel to help us make the decisions we make. And this grace builds upon nature. The nature of us establishing a good life kind of makes our vessel bigger for the vessel of grace or the, 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 the God's spirit to fill, to make us the man, magnanimous, big-souled individuals he wills us to be. And so law, the laws direct us, but even the laws are directed us to do what is good, to develop those internal dispositions of happiness that allow us to be perfected and uh, perfect our nature and manifest, okay, our rationality uh, in everything we think and feel. And so, to conclude, okay, Aristotle's vision helps expand our minds with good habits. Our intellects are filled and allowed to know more truth. Our wills are perfected and, and our passions even receive a kind of rational order that allows us to become big souled, to become big with virtue, okay? And like Philip Neary, whose love of God you know, led to his, his heart you know, breaking his ribs, uh, I, I think what we have to see here is that that life of virtue enlarges man so that obviously God can further enlarge him. And we know in beatitude that the person that not all, while everyone enjoys the beatific vision, not everyone's visions of it are equal. And so let us work to build a life of virtue. Uh, allow that virtue to build and perfect nature and nature to perfect it so that we might be filled uh, and able to be perfectly filled and perfectly fulfilled by way of, of the grace God wants to give to fully perfect and elevate our nature. Thank you for this time. Uh, for me, reflecting on, uh, you know, this is very brief. I feel like we're just beginning to scratch the surface, which is a good thing. Uh, beginning reflection on Aristotle and how his vision of morality, how the good man is the virtuous man, 
uh, and how that might be reconciled with a Christian understanding of the same. I appreciate your time uh, and, and your attentiveness. Uh, I wish you all the best in all of your philosophical endeavors. God bless. Thank you.